A very warm welcome to you all uh, from the Middle East Center at LSC. And thank you for coming on this very, very rainy day in January. But I'm sure it's worth it as we're going to be hearing about Egypt tonight. And uh, um, as you know, uh, tomorrow is the anniversary of the January revolution in Egypt, 24th. 25th of January. And we're lucky uh, to have with us uh, Adil Iskander, who I will um, um, introduce in a minute. But uh, I'm Madawi Al-Rashid. I'm visiting professor at the uh, Middle East Center. Um, I just would like to uh, let you know that the speaker has uh, 40 minutes uh, to talk about his topic. And I would like to ask you to please silence your mobile phones. Um, and if you would like to tweet about the event um, or the talk, um, the hashtag is hashtag LSC Iskander. Um, so uh, let me introduce our speaker. We're very, very lucky to have uh, Adil Iskander, who is the director of the Global Communication Program at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He's the author of several works on Egypt and Arab media, including Egypt in Flux, Essays on an Unfinished Revolution, published by I.B. Torres in 2013, and Mediating the Arab Uprisings, uh, published by Tedwin in 2012. Prior to his arrival at SFU, Iskander taught for several years at Georgetown University and the University of Texas, Austin. He is the co-editor of the famous Jadalia, um, and if you don't know it, you could Google it. It's a very, very interesting website with a lot of news and a lot of uh, uh, new research published in accessible way. You don't have to subscribe. And he's, he's the co-editor of Jadalia and also an associate producer of the Status Audio Journal. Um, please join me in welcoming Adel. Thank you so much. Everybody hear me okay? Yes? All right, fantastic. Um, I'm going to test to make sure that this works. Yes, it does. Okay. You got a preview of Sami Anin. Um, first and foremost, my sincere gratitude to everyone here at LSE's Middle East Center for their kind, very kind invitation and extremely hospitable reception. Uh, Professor Rashid's excessively generous words are uh, immensely humbling for me, uh, as someone who's followed her work quite extensively uh, over a, a long number of years, uh, and to be in her presence is, uh, is an esteemed honor. Also, many of my colleagues and friends uh, who are here today. Um, also want to express my gratitude to Sandra Sfer, uh, who so effortlessly managed uh, the logistics of my visit despite spells of very poor responsiveness on my part. So I appreciate your patience throughout that period. Um, it is with great pleasure that um, I share with you the honorable occasion of the January 25th revolution here today uh, at LSE. Admittedly, when I, approached, uh, when I was approached to give this lecture on the eve of the seventh uh, anniversary of the, uh, of the revolution, I was very much reluctant. What is left to say about Egypt? Have we not hashed and rehashed the circuitous path that led, uh, led us to the country's current quagmire and ad nauseum? Should we expect anything besides resilience and longevity of the status quo? Are we destined to continue 
this timeless waltz to the grave between the country's two most potent uh, political forces, the military and the Muslim Brotherhood? How do we begin to explain or describe the contemporary moment in relation to modern Egyptian history? How do we explain the intellectual anemia on Egypt today, and how do we explain what precipitated it? With only scattered cogent thoughts about these questions, my inclination was to apologize profusely to the Middle East Center and let them know that I wasn't, simply wasn't ready to discuss Egypt just yet, as my explorations remained unformulated. But then, my feeling of historical responsibility, and perhaps even a nostalgic lamentation of 2011, pushed me to proceed on this journey without baggage. Today, in Cairo, the Egyptian president gave a speech before the police academy on the anniversary of January 25th, Police Day. Not January 25th, the anniversary of the Egyptian revolution. Through selective historic erasure and the resurrection of other histories, in this case, the 1952 events of Ismailia police station standoff with British troops, which led to the killing of 50 uh, Egyptian police officers, became the surrogate memorial in lieu of the more recent uprising of millions of Egyptian civilians against tyranny. So if histories are to be constructed, reconstructed, animated, reenacted, reimagined, appropriated, and packaged for distribution and mass consumption, the Egyptian revolution is certainly worth a resurrection in these times of authoritarian obfuscation. Now, before I commence, if there is ever a disclaimer about this talk, it would be my hope that you will realize my propositions today are only palatable with a pinch of salt and a bucket of irony. To better understand Egypt's modern predicament, I argue we must examine the country's political life historical imaginings, and cultural production, as well as mediated representation, as that of an effigy. Now, how do we think of and how do we define effigy? One definition would be to presume that an effigy is a sculpture of, or a model of a person, or perhaps a rough physical embodiment of a person that is meant to be damaged or destroyed as an act of protest. For instance, one who is hanged or burned in public. From the Latin uh, verb, effingere, to fashion or shape artistically, or to portray or to depict or to represent. Interestingly, there's no word for effigy in Arabic. Instead, the translation is timthel, or statue, or puppet, domia. It is a stationary object, with the effingeri translating to Arabic, meaning simply the shape, the shape of something. So if Egypt is an effigy, while in Arabic, it would simply mean possessing shape or being a statue or puppet, then perhaps a statue is meant to be stationary, fixed, ossified, and a puppet, on the other hand, is meant to be manipulated, animated, functionally amendable, and modified. Can we think of the Egyptian revolution as fixed or malleable? In a short seven years, the revolution in Egypt has evolved, or as I would argue, devolved, to become a number of transmutable effigies, embodied for functional utility to serve whomever needs them. For the purpose of this lecture, I will take back the word effigy to its Latin etymological root by anglicizing it and turning it into a verb, to effigize, or to render something into an effigy. So, is the effigy of the revolution the many symbols of the dialectic confrontations between citizens and the brutal security forces immortalized by the participation of millions and memorialized through the hundreds of hours of video footage that has streamed across television screens in 2011 and onwards? Or is it a street mural 
like this one, just meters from Tahrir Square, depicting a little teary-eyed boy, the youngest victim of police attacks during the Muhammad Mahmoud battles, with the inscription, Al-Magdal Al-Maghulin, or Glory to the Unknown. Is this a symbol of the revolution's priorities? Or is it the four-fingered salute of the Muslim Brotherhood supporters who use it as, a, as an homage to the massacre of their brethren at Rab al-Adawiyah Square in 2013? Or is it the image of army soldiers sharing the square with protesters in the days, being, uh, the days before the forced resignation, resignation I'm sorry, of Mubarak? Or is it the streets of the capital filled with those who called for the removal of the first elected civilian president, Mohamed Morsi, in the summer of 2013? Or is this the effigy of revolution? A gentle-looking and handsomely bulbous grandfatherly character uh, known as Sami Anen, Egypt's former chief of st military chief of staff, a, a lieutenant general, who was just arrested yesterday for daring to contest President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in the country's March elections. A man who was once directly responsible for the killing, arrest, and torture of youth activists may have gotten effigied himself into the revolution's very last hope against Sisi for simply opposing the sitting president. Some are mourning the end of democracy as a result of this arrest. However, is that really when democracy ended in Egypt? Is mourning the end of democracy really what we're talking about? An effigy, like a sacred cow, is an idol, admired and worshipped by some, loathed and desecrated by others. Like those before him, Isisi was once revered, even worshipped, as the effigy of a messiah sent to, this, to save Egypt from the scourge of the Islamists. And a year prior, Mohamed Morsi was seen as a godsend to realize the dreams of the revolution and the end of tyranny. Before him, Mubarak was seen as, he, as one who delivered Egypt from the chaos and turmoil of the region. Sadat was seen as Egypt's military redeemer after the 1973 war and whose accord with Israel returned Sinai to Egypt. Of course, that's the, the bucket of irony, uh, of which there's plenty, by the way. Nasser was idolized for regional anti-imperial politics, nationalization of the Suez Canal and the Aswan High Dam. The same persons commemorated by admirers are flagellated by their nemeses, historic and contemporary. But it would be a mistake to assume that these icons or sacred cows are gone and forgotten. Quite the contrary. The effigies continue to be manufactured up to this day. Our effigy for the reconstitution of history and the desire to experience the sentimental senses around memories we have lived or imagined ourselves having lived is a critical part of what Egypt is today. Renowned late Egyptian filmmaker Yusuf Shaheen, whose films were occasionally banned in Egypt for, the experimental nature, for their experimental nature, blasphemy, sexual innuendos, and political adventurism, has since been rehabilitated by the state. In the city of Alexandria, where he lived for many years, a bust was commissioned and erected in his memory. It went largely unannounced and unnoticed until someone pointed out how little and pathetic a resemblance it was to the director, and it has since been removed. An effigy gone. Umm Kalthum, the diva of Egyptian and Arabic song who dominated the music scene in the 1950s and 60s and remains an omnipresent voice in Egyptian society and beyond. Hundreds of Kyrenes, young and old, most of whom hadn't even been born during uh, her time, clamor to get tickets to see this, a string puppet reenactment of her most famous ballads with a full instrumental orchestra, or sometimes a recording. Uh, as it's more convenient. 
also an icon of the so-called golden art of the of art of sorry the golden era of arts in Egypt, and seen as part of Nasserist nationalism. Umm Kalthum is reenacted, embodied, animated, ventriloquized, uh, and brought to life for collective and popular consumption of nostalgia and historic national fetishism. While these shows are individuated cultural experiments in effigies produced by civilian institutions, and in this case, Sa'it uh, Sawi uh, or a Sawi culture wheel uh, facility, a converted uh, performance space under a bridge uh, in aff- the affluent uh, neighborhood of Zamalek, many other effigies of Egypt's history are state-sponsored. I would argue the, the majority. A lot of this is the subject of humor, by the way, in Egypt, and, uh, and so hopefully you'll, you'll see that why that is the case. Nefertiti, of the 18th dynasty of, ancient, uh, of the ancient pharaohs, the presumed mother of Tutankhamun, is effigy today with a government-commissioned statue at the entrance of the town of Samalut in the governorate of Elmenia. A universal symbol of majesty, beauty, and power, her contemporary rendering was not an artistic reinterpretation of her likeness, but rather a haphazard, half-hearted, historically eviscerated, and decontextualized amalgam of clay, mud, brick, and paint. The original bust uh, designed over 3,300 years ago, to your right, was produced by those to whom Nefertiti mattered. In fact, she was a deity. Today's effigy was produced by and for those to whom she is a mere prop and arguably much of Egyptian politics today is about the uh, reimagining of props. And the history of Egypt is replete with props, props made to propel. In some instances, these props are embodiments of ideological magnificence, socialist ideological policies not unlike Nasser's pan-Arab national industrialization projects or Sadat's territorial nationalism and neoliberal privatization programs, or the ardent Sharia-inspired Islamism, many ideologies here and there. However, the effigy is that which appropriates and reformulates these characteristics and aesthetics, but discards the substantive, organic meaning ideological per- and ideological purposes that underlie it. Take, for instance, this juxtaposition of a colossal cutout to your left of Nasser from the opening of the 1971 Aswan Haidem. Uh, actually an amazing uh, collection of photographs shot by Bruno Barbie, um, which inanimate as it is, it never, I mean, he's obviously inanimate, but colossal. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> as is most representations of Nasser. Um, it is nevertheless misguided, a misguided one, because of the catastrophic and cataclysmic um, effects that this dam has had, uh, both environmentally and to the Nubian communities of uh, Upper Egypt. But some 44 years later, Assisi's attempt at Nasserist performative industrialization uh, underlies the opening of the so-called new Suez Canal in August of 2015, to your right. Here he is seen in full regalia, although at the time he had already become a civilian president, but, you know, becoming a civilian and a military member. You know, it goes back and forth if they want you to. Um, On board a military ship passing through the canal as if to inaugurate it. And despite ardent efforts by the media to depict this as an extraordinary accomplishment and groundbreaking, figuratively more so than literally, um, Assisi still appears a far more diminutive figure in his very person compared to Nasser, a real life, but hollowed out effigy of Nasser, if you will. And Sisi, in many of his representations, um, is is an attempt to be uh, a reimagined Nasser. Perhaps... 
it is the predicament of the modern state to have to deal with the effigied ideologies, and not just Egypt. We have, we have begun to see this elsewhere and everywhere. China's transnational oligarchy at the hands of the um, Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, Turkey's neoliberal Islamism merged with expansionist neo-Ottomanism, etc., etc., and you know, one could go on uh, indefinitely. Not simply the regime of Sisi, but it was, going to be, uh, it, it was going to be this case inevitably for any and all governments uh, during this period. Even the government of Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood had to grapple with irreconcilable contradictions. The letter on your left, for instance, was directed by Mohamed Morsi as sitting president to his counterpart, Shimon Perez, calling him a dear brother and talking about the relations of love between the two nations of Egypt and Israel before signing off your friend, Mohamed Morsi. Sure, this may be a template, but the effigy is the desecrated version of Morsi's former self. So while he supported, actually there's a, I don't know if you could see, oh, to your right here, maybe a bit dark. So while supported by Hamas, such as this image uh, from a Hamas rally in Gaza, uh, Morsi must continue to avow his group's mantra of perennial jihad against the Zionist enemy. But what does it mean when he has to appear uh, uh, before the diplomatic corps uh, to perform the protocols of, of, state, of statemanship? He must also maintain strong relations with the United States despite its policies across the Muslim world, accept the IMF loans despite reservations about its compatibility with Islamic financing, maintain a commitment to Sunni Islamist doctrine while befriending Shia Iran at a time of sectarian rifts across regional conflicts involving offshoot brotherhood movements. And the list goes on and on. So when the brotherhood ascended to the office of the presidency, they had merely become an effigy of their former self uh, under Hassan al-Banna, for instance. Egypt must now grapple with a multipolar world, with constellations of, for, of, fo, of foes, allies, and forces, not having to choose between a friend or a foe, but learning to accept that everyone is a friend and foe simultaneously. Now, that makes things extremely confusing. Um, U.S. is the closest ally. United, uh, Russia is perhaps a slightly closer ally, at least for the time being. There is a brotherhood with Saudi Arabia, although there's, you know, there's no uh, intent to actually join the coalition uh, in Yemen uh, or committing to it but never lifting a finger. Um, the consideration that perhaps Iran should be considered but with complacency, calling for justice in Syria but aligning with pro-regime politics, building and strengthening ties with Africa while maintaining a contrarian approach to Nile Basin countries, accepting all Western diktats in the areas of economic reforms and privatization and foreign direct investment and restructuring of the economy and the, rem and the removal of subsidies. Um, not, of course, you know, but, but at the same time uh, appearing to ignore any of their demands on human rights and political reform and inclusion. Forever objectified and genderized. These are all, hopefully it should be self-evident, but I'm giving examples of how these effigies exist in contemporary politics in Egypt today. Forever objectified and genderized, Egypt, known endearingly as mother of the world to Egyptians, the state not only mass-produces misogyny and chauvinism supported by a massified cultural patriarchy in the spirit of renewal and like previous eras in national history, the state engulfs and repackages feminism in its image. The National Council for, e for Women, of which this is a, a photo, 
Yes. <laughs> Just making sure I'm looking at the right photo, although they're all essentially the same. Um, uh, is the government agency responsible for promoting women's rights in the workplace, home, and society at large? Assisi appoint, appointed the largest number of women ministers in his cabinet and regularly addresses mothers in his speeches, often telling them to you know, control their sons and you know, either bring them out to vote or keep them at home, depending on what is needed from the state at, at any given moment. Um, the seemingly unique attention and faux charm um, have produced an effigy of feminism that mirrors the, state the state's political agendas of dispossession rather than emancipation from subjugation. The same Sisi, who is often celebrated by what, uh, uh, by what journalist Sarah Carr satirically calls the militants, uh, is well known uh, to be supported by, by, by a lot of women in Egypt. And some of you might recall uh, during the various rounds of, of elections, uh, the, the polling stations would turn into dance parties uh, that often gets covered in, in the press. Um, however, this woman has seen a different side of state feminism. Samira Ibrahim, the only woman to have come out and publicly challenged the military, at least at the time, on conducting virginity tests after the March 9th, 2011 dispersal of Tahrir Square. Ironically, when it comes to the desecration of historic sites, this happened on the grounds of the Egyptian Museum. Sisi, Egypt's current president, was then general. He was tasked, incidentally, by the uh, Supreme Council for the Armed Forces to address this file with the media, international media primarily, of course, he is quoted as saying that the tests were done to protect these women by proving that they had not been sexually assaulted. When faced with these contradictions, it becomes quite evident that, this, that state feminism, like all other ideologies that I've described previously, is essentially disemboweled and battered. It is a disemboweled and battered effigy of women's rights. Urban spaces in Egypt where the vast majority of city dwellers live are quite simply inhumane. The shanty towns and slums, Ashwaiyat, if you will, are aplenty and speak to a reality often camouflaged under the glittery smoke screens of state-sponsored industrial progress. Nothing speaks to effigies more than imagined urban spaces and blueprints of fictitious modernity. Feast your eyes on Egypt's new administrative capital which will cost tens of billions of dollars to build, inaugurated in, uh, this of course is in the inauguration of the, in, at the Egyptian Investment Conference. Um, I don't know if this will ever see the light of day, but if it does, uh, I, I tell you it'll come at a, at a hefty cost to the vast majority of, of Egyptian citizens uh, where it is needed most, at the very least in infrastructural uh, needs, uh, both in healthcare and education and elsewhere. This is what I think Jean Baudrillard would call a simulacra. Perhaps the effigy is one manifestation of a simulacra, simulacra of space, reconstituted in the likeness of what once was or what had never been. Perhaps it is just a pure figment of the imagination. You imagine space, then reconstruct it according to this imagined uh, uh, constitution, and presume that it becomes not only livable, but uh, commendable by the ma ma vast majority of, of the population. Admittedly, Egyptians are desperate for something to celebrate. You know, 
and in some instances celebrating the construction of 10 residential towers in this new administrative city surrounded by nothing but uh, barren desert is something worth commemorating. Or perhaps the, cut, the drilling out of, um, of, uh, of sand and rock parallel to the Suez Canal is an indication that somehow uh, we are approaching modernity uh, at a snail's pace, uh, but perhaps that we're getting there somehow. And yet, a critical component of the effigy is its performativity. An effigy should be something worth animating. An effigy uh, retrieved and utilized in protests is meant to be desecrated, as I mentioned, whether it's a voodoo doll that you prick or you burn or you hang in a public space, or perhaps you're going to turn it into, as I mentioned, a sacred cow. Um, but it is meant to be animated. Its deification or its incineration are absolutely necessary. Its animation or its immobilization. Uh, Albert Cosseri, the uh, late novelist, um, Alexandrian novelist who wrote uh, pre predominantly in, in France, authored a book called The Joker. And in the opening scene of, of this book, he describes a circumstance where um, in this fictitious place, presumably Egypt, given his uh, knowledge of, uh, of you know, Egyptian security forces and the police state, but he describes a situation where uh, begging is illegal because it is a sign of underdevelopment. And so um, soldiers and police officers often patrol urban spaces to ensure that nobody is publicly begging uh, so that visitors and travelers don't see the incredible disparity that exists in, in society at large. Uh, and somehow there is uh, what appears to be the silhouette of a man sitting on, in a street corner, um, kind of minding his own business, but he happens to have his palms before him. And so the police officer immediately runs to him and pulls out his baton and proceeds to challenge him and say, leave, leave this spot, you can't beg here. And the person sits immobilized and non-responsive, doesn't say a word. Of course, because of the loudness of the police officer's voice, commotion begins to happen and people start to congregate to figure out what's going on and to see this confrontation between an intransigent member of the citizenry and the police officer. Um, and of course, you know, Quite presumably, the public wants to, wants to see this incredibly tense moment resolved, either in favor of the member of the citizenry, presumably that's where, they, where their uh, positionality might be, uh, but perhaps the, the state will be able to prevail in the form of this, uh, this civil servant. And so he proceeds to yell and scream at him. And at a certain point, the escalation necessitated that he use his baton. So he immediately reaches over and lifts the baton overhead and smacks it atop this man's head. And he very slowly falls and drops, almost like a corpse. Turns out it was a scarecrow. There wasn't a, it wasn't a real human anyway. And this was all a big plot to essentially embarrass the police. So at that point, for a brief moment, the, the um, presumption on the part of the public was that this police officer had beat this person to death. And this was a major confrontation, and it actually is the tension in the novel, the idea of how one could use satire and comedy to essentially eviscerate the police state. Now, I say this because when we think about immobilization and what it means to be performing a critique of the state, 
Um, there's one great example, I think, I mean, now that I'm in the UK, I can kind of talk about Black Mirror. I don't think enough people in the US are watching it. But, uh, but in one particular episode in the second series, uh, episode three, there's uh, a character of Waldo, played by Daniel Rigby. And, uh, and the Waldo moment, how many of you have seen this episode? All right, so a few people have seen this. Anyway, I'm not going to recount uh, the story, but basically uh, this, the character of, of Waldo becomes essentially a candidate in a political election. Now, it sounds so inconceivable, almost to a point that the fantasy is, is laughable, but it kind of isn't. You know, as you follow the circumstances that are unfolding across the pond in the United States and, you know, the, the, the kind of political expression that comes out of the White House, for instance, we begin to think about puppetry and, and performativity as an actual form of, uh, of political expression. But why go too far? Political satire in Egypt existed in the real sense, right? Um, comedy became a surrogate for political reporting, or perhaps it became a complement to political reporting during the period of 2011 and 2012, what I would describe as the golden era of uh, Egyptian uh, kind of democratic expression. Uh, Bessem Youssef here uh, is someone who I think is known to, to most people, the equivalent of um, John Stewart or, or Trevor Noah, the, uh, the Daily Show. was basically kind of a mirror image of the program uh, in Egypt, and it was able to garner a significant amount of following and, and, uh, and support, and for many, you know, some blame or some sort of acknowledge that Bessem Youssef may have had uh, enough of an impact as far as the uh, collective imaginary in Egypt to have impacted people's perception of the political order at that given moment. Um, but essentially, uh, like all things in Egypt, it also needed to disappear. Um, so uh, because Bessem Youssef was a perceived threat to the political order, the only alternative that remains was Abla Fahita, right? The alternative is puppeteering, right? In similar, similar circumstance as, um, as Umm Kalthum. In the absence of Umm Kalthum, we have Sa'it al-Sawi's performances of Umm Kalthum. The only alternative is puppeteering of social taboos with very safe, extremely safe forays into political defeatism. If you were to watch Abla Fahita long enough, you'll realize that aesthetically, it's a very, very complicated set. A lot of money has been invested in this. This is supposed to garner a significant amount of advertising and, uh, and is, a, is a quite a notable um, component of the media diet uh, in, for, for many Egyptians who have now turned most of their attention away from the political order and towards the sort of... Uh, uh, the defeatist distractions of, uh, of both comedy uh, and entertainment. But nevertheless, if you were to watch it close enough, you will notice that Abla Fahita, when she talks about politics, she will talk about it from the position of someone who cannot possibly imagine an alternative to the status quo. And, and everybody in the audience laughs under their breath. So it's kind of a known thing. Everybody realizes that the situation in, in th this current moment uh, is, uh, is absolutely abhorrent, uh, but nevertheless, they can't discuss it quite the same way that they would under, um, under the, um, uh, during the period of, of Besim Yusuf. Um, but the importance of having the effigy of the performative puppet is, an is anonymity. Right? I mean, everybody knows who the producers of the show are. Everybody knows who actually controls the puppet. But the protection, not from the security forces, but from public knowledge, is sometimes more important. 
the fear that there will be societal retaliation against these individuals. And of course, as far as the regime is concerned, they're happy to see a slightly open faucet. Right? So people like Khaled Ali, for instance, one of the contenders in the, in the up, or presumably, I actually haven't heard the press conference. There was a press conference literally, like, as I was walking in. I'm going to interrupt my presentation to ask. Has he, he withdrew? Okay, so he withdrew. There we go. So, <laughs> so the performance continues without contenders. But uh, all this to say that, um, that functionally speaking, um, the, when you have a performance, right, it is important for there to be a cast. And right now we have performances that are cast-free. There are single, individuated, you know, horse races with only one horse running. The rest are essentially uh, nowhere to be found. So, how am I doing for time? Am I okay? Just seven minutes. Seven minutes, okay. So, Abla <laughs> Fahid. Okay. Where are we? So, the Egyptian constitution as it stands today, for those of you who are interested in it, and it's worth reading, okay? Because this is a constitution that has resulted in a significant amount of both bloodletting and uh, a real shattering of the, of the social fabric in Egyptian society. Uh, the Constitution of 2012 and the Constitution of 2014 um, are both extremely complicated documents that, are, that represent a quote-unquote vision for what Egypt was meant to be, should have been, and perhaps the way they, uh, that Egypt might be imagined. But at the very top of the Egyptian Constitution, there is a clear reference to the great Egyptian revolution of January 25th. Even as the state has gone to every possible length to bury this revolution. Today, the state rarely even mentions it. It is considered anathema. But that wasn't always the case. The state, under both Morsi and Sisi alike, has attempted at numerous occasions to appropriate and deform the revolution and to produce it either in its Islamicized version or in its militarized attire. Most of such attempts have failed because the revolutionaries, as disparate and incongruous and um, um, disaggregated as they may be, have not allowed it to happen. The effigies erected by the state <coughs> continuously to stand in for the revolution have all been poked at like voodoo dolls, or the statues that they've constructed have been brought down without fail. This image that you look at now is one of a statue commissioned by the state in 2013 after the removal of Morsi to celebrate the revolution at the center of Tahrir Square. Within hours of its erection, once you know, the sun set on Tahrir Square, swarms of activists used their bare hands and makeshift tools, including chisels that they picked up from neighboring stores, to tear apart the statue. And instead, they sat atop it, a symbolic coffin draped, uh, draped with an Egyptian flag. This is the effigy. It is an effigy meant to sit in for what once inhabited the square, the bodies of people who lost their lives to fight tyranny. The reclamation of every single memory of the revolution has forced the state to, for, to simply forego the production of revolutionary effigies. Instead, the state has turned to completely wiping out the revolution from public and collective memory. So, why must the state continue to beat a dead horse? Well, if the January 25th revolution is in fact a horse, then it just might be 
that this horse isn't dead at all. Quite the contrary, it might just be immortal. Thank you. Thank you, Adil, for a very informative, original way of interpreting what happened in Egypt, uh, not only over the last seven years, but it may be a window of opportunity for us to look at Egypt uh, through this lens, um, invoking the long durée. Uh, I'm going to use my uh, chair here and ask you a question. Um, yes, uh, it seems to me what you've described is uh, Egypt's uh, appetite to uh, create big men, big women, icons, effigies, uh, then destroy them, then reinvent them. Um, it's quite dynamic. Uh, but uh, um, what I wanted to ask is, is the, when, whether it's in culture or in politics, like if we're talking about in Kurthum, or, um, is there any structural uh, conditions in Egypt that make uh, the process you described recurrent and continuous. Uh, so that's the question. And then Egypt, uh, as you say, Umm dunya the mother of the world, uh, is not only for Egyptians. And throughout the 20th century, and I don't want to go be before that, it, it really did influence the Arab world by producing uh, trends that had uh, uh, a strong uh, ability to migrate from the Egyptian context, and that is modernity. Egypt introduced that to the Arab world, even the constitution. M most Egyptians, most Arab constitutions were written by Egyptians in the 20th century. Um, uh, so modernity, then followed by Arab nationalism, it came from Egypt. Obviously, there were uh, other efforts in Lebanon, Levant, etc., but only the Egyptian one spread and became an Arab effigy. <laughs> uh, and finally, we have the, um, the Islamist. Again, Egypt produced that and exported its effigy to the Arab world. So how do you explain that? <laughs> how do you explain that? Um, um, and uh, finally, uh, if this is a recurrent pattern, why has the 25th of January revolution failed to create its own effigy and an everlasting one, at least for some time? Thank you. Very provocative questions, I have to say. Um, let's see, how do I... How do I start with this? I think one of the, one of the key points, were, and, and I think examining your questions in tandem would, would make more sense. Um, Egypt has had an oversized impact on the, on the larger Middle East uh, for much of the last 60 years, of course, with declining, uh, declining role as a result of um, the structural kind of um, decrepitness of contemporary life in Egypt and the death of political life. Uh, in the country. Um, of course, I, I blame a significant amount uh, or a large part of this is the responsibility of subsequent generations of, um, of military rule. Uh, of course, if we were to look at what Egypt gave the Arab world, I mean, I, ha I sort of have a problem. I think it, it's also part of the construction of the imaginary of what, what it means for Egypt to have done what it's done. Um, Egypt is, doesn't exist in a vacuum, in the sense that when we talk about the, the rise of, of pan-Arab nationalism, we can't take out the Levantine contribution to the Egyptian 
um, you know, construction of, of Arab nationalism. Like even Nasser learned a significant amount from um, you know, anti-imperial revolutionary movements, not only across the region, but outside of the Middle East at large. Um, so this is, I think, a, a really important point that I think Egypt gets, while Egypt deserves a lot of credit, but, uh, but it may be getting an outsized credit for a lot of what it's done. As far as um, its, um, its contribution to uh, jurisprudence, um, constitutional, uh, constitutionalism uh, in the region, uh, federalism, republicanism, um, all of those are, are well-meaning, but I think that may be part of the endemic problem that exists uh, in the region at large, that, that many states were built in the image of Egypt. When you travel to, um, let's say, the, you know, Palestine and look at the manner in which the, you know, the Palestinian Authority uh, and the governing authority is structured, it very much resembles the Egyptian state. So the Egyptian state may be sort of a, an, an old uh, and resilient structure. In fact, it's so resilient that it was able to overcome all of these incredible um, um, sort of um, uh, tectonic shifts that have happened uh, over the last 60, 70 years, perhaps even longer than that. But, uh, but its resilience may, you know, while it's celebrated by some, you'll often hear in the Egyptian media people talking about, you know, protecting the state and defending the state and the state must be upright, you know, and nothing will bring down the state. And these folks are trying to bring down the state. The revolutionaries are trying to bring down the state. The Muslim, everybody's trying to bring down the state. It's as if the state is the only thing worth protecting. And people are prepared to lose their life to protect the state. So the state becomes a surrogate for the nation. It becomes a surrogate for, for the people, for citizenry. You know? So the idea of protecting and defending the state and with all of its structures is, I think, a functional problem. And it's been produced and mass-produced and, and, in fact, replicated across the region at large, especially for countries, if I may say so myself, um, and some of you may not agree with this particular characterization, for states that have grown out of the post-colonial uh, predicament Nations that have essentially been carved out by Sykes Picot have been carved out by uh, you know the departure of, of French and British colonialism. I mean these are these are countries whose borders are so incredibly porous and perhaps in no way connected to any to even an imagined identity that they had to construct identities out of out of nothingness. Flags had to be drawn, anthems had to be you know uh, scripted and and written and performed. So in a sense, Egypt does serve as a model, but. Is this the model that needs to be followed, whether it's in the you know, production and distribution of, of political ideology or, uh, or even its, uh, its execution in the form of actual policy? But all this to say that Egypt is quite resilient because these political ideologies, as much as they are effigies, they continue to exist, and they're, they're around. Nasserism is still around. You know, so that's, you know, policies are still around. There are people in this, you know, in, maybe in this room, but there are people in Egypt today, of which many of them are, are young, who will die by those words. You know, they're deeply committed uh, to these perspectives. But the same applies to the revolution. So the revolution isn't ruling, right? But what it's done is, it's, it's done something that I think is, uh, is quite peculiar in that millions of people participated in it. Millions of people went out into the streets and saw something that was far grander and far more memorable than anything that preceded it and anything that followed it. And as far as public collective imaginary is concerned, nothing that you can mass produce over 150 television networks broadcast to 90 million homes will be anything like 
what you experienced in Tahrir Square, in Shara Muhammad Mahmoud, uh, in the streets of Suez, in the streets of Bursaid, in Smaaliya, even in, in the Aqalim, in the, in the governorates. There is something that has captured the imagination of young people. It is the reason why we continue have, having these events. These events exist not because the Middle East Center, with all due credit, of course, decided to, to put this together, but because there's genuine interest. I be, how many of you are Egyptians? Can, I, can you raise a hand? Wow. That's a lot of Egyptians. That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. I almost came late too. <laughs> In fact, I was going to be very Egyptian and not even show up. <laughs> Effigy of me. Yeah? A hologram. You always see the hologram of me. But, but, it's, but the, the popular imaginary is real. Right, and even though these individuals, while they might be running to the embassy, and I'm saying this is these are real experiences. Many of you have decided to run to the, to the embassy to basically draft your petitions in support of a candidate. You know, Khaled Ali, perhaps who decided to withdraw, or somebody else, maybe Sisi, who knows? Maybe you know, whatever it is, people are they appear to be demobilized, but that doesn't stop them from thinking. And there's something about the revolution that will live on. It will live on for a very, 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 very long time. Um, it is the reason why, and I'm, I'm going to put somebody on the spot right now without his permission, but when, you know, just before the lecture began, a young man walked in across the room, right, and I immediately noticed who he was, and I recognized him. He may be a colleague of yours, he might know who he is, but his name is Ahmed Harara, and he's sitting in the front row, okay? Ma- Ahmed, do you mind raising your hand? I'm an Asif, I'm with the Asif, okay? For those who know Ahmed Harara, okay. So. okay. When, when we talk about icons, right, when we talk about icons of the revolution, they may be few and far between as far as notability and celebrity status. It is not about celebrity. It is about what people have decided to sacrifice to be able to see through their dreams. And this young man has sacrificed the dearest that one could sacrifice, his own vision, in the, in the protests against the police forces in Muhammad Mahmoud. And he is... And I'm, this is without exaggeration, for millions and millions of Egyptian young people, he is far greater and far more powerful than that silly idiotic structure that used to sit in Tahrir Square. It is because of the sacrifices of people like Ahmed Harara that this structure will never go up. This does not exist anymore, right? And nothing will replace it. And it's because of these types of... Sorry, uh, I'm a bit emotional, so... (laughs) Yes, I can see here the heightened emotions. Uh, um, Thank you for uh, your uh, answers. Um, I'm going to open it now for uh, a Q&A session. Please uh, introduce yourself and wait uh, for the um, microphone. And please don't ask three questions. You're only allowed one brief question so that we give an opportunity to the audience, other members of, uh, of the audience. Uh, the gentleman there. Um, I'm inclined to take three questions and then give Adel the opportunity to answer, but please keep your question brief. Uh, thank you for your talk. My name is Hamza. I'm doing Master's IR in LSE. Um, in your opinion, to what extent has the failure of the Syrian revolution impacted um, Egypt's return to this authoritarian uh, rule and this iron fist and do you think that uh, the fact that Bashar al-Assad is still in power has given some kind of hope to a Sisi to govern this way? Thank you very much. Um, take another question. Second one here, the gentleman in the front row. Thank you. Uh, Omar Khazi, assistant professor in the media department here. Thanks, Adil. 
That was really um, thought-provoking. I wanted to ask you what is kind of, and I think you kind of touched on it, but what is not an effigy if in, in that sense? Uh, is it because you, you gave examples from several kind of successive administrations and f even outside Egypt, but within Egypt, is this a CC state project or it's beyond that? Uh, Thank you. Uh, third question from the middle, uh, the gentleman there. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, my question is... Um, Could you introduce you yourself, please? Yeah. Uh, I'm Ziad. I'm uh, Egyptian. I study law at Kings. Um, like, looking back at revolutions throughout the world, everyone, each revolution seems to have an effigy in some way, like the French Revolution or the Enlightenment in Europe had humanism. Uh, but, for example, in Egypt, I feel like since we don't have any form of social democracy, how can we just leap forward to political democracy when our social classes are manipulating each other, like religion, manipulating the masses? So we tend to move away from democracy and towards demagoguery. Okay, thank you. Uh, Adil, three questions. Thank you. All the questions really uh, important and profound. Um, the first question about Syria and the impact of Syria on, on the trajectory of Egyptian political progress. Um, I think the wheels were already in motion uh, as far as the entrenchment of the various political actors and forces in Egypt before uh, the circumstances uh, in Syria kind of spiraled out of control in the manner that they did. Uh, but nevertheless, there, there is something to be said about the, um, the impact that Syria has, or you know, what, what unfolded, uh, the gravity of, of the military and political confrontation and the extent to which it became kind of a winner takes all and the ability to sacrifice everything and anything uh, whether you know it's the regime's you know desire to, uh, to to kind of slash and burn whatever exists in the country and its adversaries to basically coalesce and have you know foreign fighters come in that it, it, the internationalization of, of the conflict um, has produced, uh, a, you know, we joke about it in Egypt where we say, um, you know, that Egypt is, so long as Egypt is not the republic of not Syria and Iraq, that we're kind of okay. Like, basically, if we do anything uh, short of, of, you know, recreating what happened in Syria and Iraq, we'll kind of be all right, you know. Uh, but it also has meant that the state can go farther as far as its uh, ability to use brute force and impunity. So when you, co when you look at uh, instances that have happened uh, after the removal of, of Mohammed Morsi with the political confrontation between the Muslim Brotherhood and the state becoming w what it was, uh, there was also a significant amount of public support for it. So it turned into kind of a win-win um, you know, situation for the state. And they were able to see that as far as the international community is concerned, there's a far graver human rights crisis going on in Syria and in Iraq and other places. And the international community is going to turn a blind eye so long as it is um, consecrated with a political process, which is exactly what the state tried to do, have elections and all this stuff. I mean, the Syrian state is trying to do that as well. The regime is trying to do that. But it is much more convincing in the Egyptian circumstance. So it has had an impact, but I would not go as far as say that what happened in Egypt is a consequence of what was going on in Syria. All these political forces were very much in place. The competition was unfolding in a manner that it did, and we could see the jockeying of various kind of uh, political powers uh, in the interim or in, the, uh, in that period. Um, 
uh, Omar's question, uh, what is not an effigy? Um, you mean in terms of the, the current, sort of the contemporary moment? Like what is CC doing? In your conceptualization yeah. So in my conceptualization of, of effigy, I, I think of the effigy as almost like a, a reenactment or kind of a sort of a, an attempt to create an embodied reflection of an existing thing. Now, of course, it brings us to the question of what, whether something is real or isn't, but I think the commitment to an, an ideological position is something that would render, some, render a circumstance or an embodiment much more worthwhile and substantive. Uh, in many instances, what is happening in Egypt today is a, a distancing from any particular ideological position. So, for instance, when you look at Egypt's economic policy, it is actually a very scattered policy. On one level, there is the vast sort of uh, move towards the privatization of the public sector, but simultaneously, we are seeing the public sector actually you know, swell in such a way that we've got industries, like state industries, of course, you know, run predominantly by the military, the military economy, but they're growing in a very significant way. So these two are, are not necessarily in tandem. On one level, we see the lifting of subsidies, but there's also a desire to, uh, to ensure that the poorest of the poor receive sufficient subsidy that they become uh, much more complacent and much more agreeable to the state. So it's a very, very odd sort of, um, you know, um, uh, representation or sort of uh, enactment of, of, of these policies. But as far as the, um, the, the, the more sort of iconic representation of, of some of these policies, I think anything can be rendered into an effigy. And it is much more um, convincing when the effigy does have a pre-existing associative uh, collective sort of shared experiential dimension to it. So you can take, for instance, um, contemporary popular culture and turn it into an effigy. You can turn a revolution into an effigy because people were part of an, an existing kind of movement. You can turn the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, as an effigy as well, supported and revered by some and you know, uh, despised by others for some of the same reasons, uh, but without necessarily discussing or, or thinking or contemplating what those base principles happen to be. The critical aspect of, of the effigy is the visuality. If it can be visualized, if it can be manipulated in a in a in a in a functional way, then it can be uh, an effigy. But nevertheless, keep in mind that this is still very sort of um, nascent, even in my mind. I'm still kind of contemplating it. Uh, Ziad's question uh, about uh, mass manipulation and demagoguery and and social democracy. I think. There is, there is a tendency for us to, to understand and contemplate the sort of, uh, or to see Egypt with a, a degree of exceptionalism, that there's something quite uh, anomalous uh, about Egypt that is contrary to what might exist elsewhere. Um, no community, no population is immune from populist demagoguery, uh, as we very well know, even when there are seemingly kind of democratic structures in place. So... Um, so to assume that people can be manipulated because of religion, because of uh, various other kind of um, sort of cultural sensibilities, uh, um, cross-cutting social notions, I mean, even like chauvinism. You know, nowadays in, in Egypt, you could rally people behind uh, sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, heteronormative kind of perspectives. Like as soon as Mashroor Leila has a concert in Egypt, it's the end of the world. Like everybody's like, everybody is like, 
up in arms, like, ah, that's it, you know, kill all the gays, you know. It's just unbelievable. But this is literally what people are saying in Egypt. And we're talking about people from across the political spectrum and the social spectrum, for that matter. So um, whipping people into a frenzy is a function of political expression. And nowadays, in, in our, with, when we talk about you know, political persuasion, uh, it is, and, and the fact that we, we've subsumed political expression into very, very simplistic um, uh, sort of catchphrases, it's extremely easy. I mean, take, for instance, the Muslim Brotherhood slogan of Islam al-Hal. How can you even contest that? Islam al-Hal. Islam is the solution. Challenge that. Challenge it. You can't. Of course. It, you know, we can think of it any way we want, but consider a political, a political slogan like Islam is the solution and think about what it means to be contesting it in the political arena. What is it like? Or for instance, Tahya Masr, long live Egypt, the slogan of the current state. How do you challenge Tahya Masr, long live Egypt? You want Egypt to die? <laughs> what do you want? You know? So populism is not, it's not just, or make America great again. You guys heard that before? <laughs> Yeah, so I think the, 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 the beauty of political demagoguery is in its simplicity, right? Um, so I wouldn't say that Egypt is any, you know, any less, any exception, isn't exceptional, but I would also say that it doesn't mean that there's no hope in Egypt. In fact, I would make, I would make the argument that Egypt is an immensely democratic country, not as a state, but the public is immensely democratic in other ways. The day that the police disappeared from public life in Egypt on January 28th. For weeks, the police were nowhere to be found, and the Egyptians governed their country. How did they govern the country? You might, I mean, it's, it's not research as much as it should, but they were called popular committees, right? You, me, family members, go out into the streets, watch your neighborhoods, figure out who's who, neighborhood watches. Like, people come, and it's not just for security purposes. It's sharing of resources, sharing of ideas, figuring out who needs to go where. Uh, if somebody needs to go to a hospital, you take them there. The battles of Muhammad Mahmoud, you know, where, where people were fighting against the police. All of a sudden, makeshift, um, you know, hospitals. The same thing happened in Gezi Park. Human beings have an incredible ability to commune and build collective structures of democratic participation in the absence of the security state. And that is, I think, the functional, uh, you know, um, um, uh, let's say like the nucleus of democratic life. And, we, and I believe that Egypt not, isn't just a nucleus. If anything, if Egypt's contribution moving forward, it won't be constitutions or laws or jurisprudence or policies or ideologies. It'll be the ability to, to, to live humanely in the absence of the state. There are thousands and thousands of shanty towns in Egypt where the state is nowhere to be found, right? And people live. As they say, there's an expression in Egypt that says, which I don't believe. <laughs> it's, a, it's a proverb. It basically says that nobody dies of starvation in Egypt or nobody goes to bed without a meal, right? And, uh, and it just might be true. It just might be true. When the state fails to subsidize, when the safety nets disappear, guess what? People will sometimes support each other. Now, most of the time, they're elbowing each other to, to get into a cab, but, uh, but there's something to be said about the disappearance of the state. When the state fails to meet its obligations, somehow things work out. Thank you. Uh, 
Short I'm so sorry. I, can I can okay. I just say that part? I have not. I live in Vancouver, where there are very few Egyptians, and I hardly ever talk about Egypt. Okay. So this is my first presentation. Okay. In two years. So I think it's uh, yeah. I think okay. it's uh, let's, it's let's pent up. Let's take three more questions. Uh, the gentleman there, and uh, yeah. here. Hello, uh, my name's Jack Schenker and I'm a journalist who used to be based out in Egypt. Um, I uh, thank you so much for the talk. It was really interesting and I really enjoyed the way you kind of talked about the, the construction of the populist imaginary of revolution. And I just wondered what you thought about the state's imaginary of, of revolution. And it, it occurred to me over the past week or two, two very different events which sort of connected in my mind were that, of course, the uh, shenanigans over Semi Anand's uh, supposed run for the presidency and the fact that the regime obviously has decreed it unacceptable, even for a kind of stage-managed dissent within the establishment. And at the same time, the Mozarin Collective released its uh, archive of revolutionary material and that kind of unsanctioned layer of historical memory. So how much of the latter is the state afraid of? You know, whatever its public burying of, of, of revolutionary narratives, how much is the revolution kind of evergreen within the, within the state's imaginary? Thank you. While you're there, there is um, a question from front, and then I'll move to Dina, and then in the third round. Yes, please. Um, my name is Laura Elgebeli. I'm studying at Goldsmiths, and uh, I wanted to ask, in your um, vision of or in your characterization of the effigy, basically. How, because you spoke a lot about, you talked about concepts as effigy, but you also spoke a lot about physical things, such as the thing that we see pictured. And uh, I was wondering, basically, how important you think like the non-tangible or the digital space is, essentially, for allowing every individual to participate, basically, in breaking down like the effigies, um, so to speak, without actually physically having to break anything. Thank you. And the one from here, yeah. Dina. Uh, thank you. I'm Dina Matar from uh, the Center for uh, Global Media and Communication at SOAS. And my question is about the role of effigies and linking it to the notion of power. Um, and the, uh, you know, do you see it? I mean, how, how do you, what, what role do effigies play? And if you think about the mediation of effigies and the kind of repetition, uh, particularly via the media of effigies in Egypt, do they lose, you know, if you think about uh, Walter Benjamin's ar argument about the loss of the aura, I mean, do they lose their function? So perhaps that is kind of uh, interesting to look at uh, in terms of uh, the revolution as an effigy. Uh, and uh, so again, there was the aspect of uh, effigy as a form of communication, which I would like you to uh, uh, relate to. Uh, so these are questions coming from my interest. Thank, Thank you. So, uh, uh, okay, let's take yes, one yes, more. Yes. Four. <laughs> Since I don't give people a chance to ask. <laughs> yeah, um, my name is Aicho Chubukcho. I teach human rights here at LSE. Um, my question was very basic. Um, what did you mean by the revolution? Which, what does it refer to? And I heard you as saying, perhaps I misheard you, but there is something unrepresentable, uneffigiable in what you seem to be thinking of when you say revolution. It's almost a spirit that cannot be represented. So hence my question, 
because you uh, enumerated a number of possibilities of understanding the revolution, yet you use it repeatedly. So I was wondering, what is it referring to in your discourse? Okay. These are such great questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no, we, we're going to stop here because there are already four, and then... Uh, well, just wait a little bit until we hear the answers. We have time for another round or two rounds. Okay. So, uh, Jack, thanks for, thanks for being here. Uh, fantastic book. Anybody? If, <laughs> uh, so, I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that you mentioned this. I mean, the, the juxtaposition of these two kind of political, kind of temporal circumstances, the Muslims database, which is basically a, a massive repository <laughs> of uh, state security violation against the public uh, for a number of, a critical number of years. This is a historic memory. Uh, historic memory that's being eviscerated, that's being erased, that's being effaced uh, by the state, and would, they would rather see it forgotten. Um, incidentally, I think the state isn't as worried about this particular uh, dimension, only because I think uh, they've been s successful at suppressing conversation and discussion about the revolution in the interest of the status quo, whatever that means. So people are in a panic about whether or not they can put food on the table, and the presumption is that if you support anything that is revolutionary, then you are derailing this movement towards the better, even though they watch things deteriorate in day-to-day -day life. So the answer is not revolution, is not recognizing the, uh, the ills and, and the misgivings of previous quote-unquote administrations and military regimes. It's just, let's keep going. And the let's keep going part is where Sami Annan comes into the picture uh, because he is part of the let's keep going. This is a person who is part of that track. He is a member of the, a prominent member of the military and, of course, uh, seems to indicate that there is a, a conflict within the cadres of uh, the upper levels of the Egyptian military. So as far as um, uh, salient threat to the regime in this moment, then Sam Annan is definitely a big problem. Uh, and so to remove him is, is very critical. Question is whether or not he constitutes a, a popular base. He may not be, but with his arrest, that there might be something that coalesces around him. So, of course, the Egyptian media has to come out and say that Sami Annan is supported by the Brotherhood and is supported by the youth revolutionaries. And all. I mean, anybody who doesn't like Assisi is going to gather some, you know, uh, behind, uh, behind Sami Annan. But Sami Annan is the person who presided over SCAF, uh, the Supreme Council for the Armed Forces, during, like, subsequent massacres in the 18 months that they were in power. So any, you know, uh, any... This is the problem of, like, here I am condemning people who are going to come out and support Samana. No, I mean, functionally speaking, he, he is part of the problem. Uh, but all this to say that um, the real concern here is, um, or I shouldn't say the concern, I think where there is hope, it's in the fact that the state uh, is so busy trying to deal with, uh, with emergencies, with existential emergencies, that it actually has developed a, a real serious case, two cases in fact, of amnesia and myopia, right? It kind of forgets what it did two weeks ago. Like, wait a minute, so the image that I showed you of uh, Sisi inaugurating the Suez Canal, he's dressed in military regalia, even though he's the president. When in reality, what they discussed today or yesterday about Sami Annan's ineligibility was the fact that he didn't take permission to go from being a member of the military to being a civilian. So here is the president who can easily oscillate back and forth between a military and a civilian. 
and the guy who's running two three individuals in fact who are supposed to be running against him or in, in, you know express their intent to run against him are members of the military who have not done the official thing of stepping out of the military uniforms so all this to say that the state forgets or the military forgets what it did last week and it can be caught in this web of, of contradiction. The second is, is essentially myopia, that they literally don't see far enough. Like they have no idea that the Mussolini database is infinitely more problematic to them than Sami Anan. Sami Anan will come and go. He represents no existing constituency except competition with their own institution, which is a very, very small number of generals. The popular imaginary is much more powerful, and that is why... I think, in the long term, things will, will pay off. Um, Dina's question, uh, I think Dina was next, right? Jack, Dina? Okay. Laura. Laura? Where's Laura? Oh, yeah, yeah. oh there's Laura. Okay. Um, the, the digital, um, I mean, the problem with the digital is the fact that, you know, on one level, the construction of the digital effigy is something that the state is responsible for doing. Uh, but at the same time, the revolutionaries and I'm going to come back to deconstruct revolution in a moment. But the, the, those individuals who uh, align themselves with a revolutionary movement are also actively participating in the construction of their own effigies. And these effigies are a critical response to uh, all the other effigies that exist in this constellation. So really it is all about desecrating the effigies of the other. So we're busy kind of building effigies to destroy the effigies of someone else. You're like, okay, uh, you know, here's uh, Khaled Saeed, uh, here's, uh, you know, Mina Daniel, and, you know, the, the Rabah, no, I'm sorry, no, these are not our effigies, we reject them, and vice versa. It's like, no, these guys were opposed to us at such and such period. So these effigies are basically in competition against each other, uh, or at least the construction of, uh, of these imaginaries. But in the digital space, there is also the room for the contortion of reality in the sense that there's a significant amount of fabrication. And so whether or not something is verifiable makes it much more difficult for people to, or for publics at large, to believe what they see. Take, for instance, what's happened in Syria. This is kind of a living example, and it, it, it's manifested in other locales as well. But the idea that you just aren't entirely sure that what is happening in X and Y place, or that this individual represents what they are what they mean to represent. So this suspicion has rendered a lot of um, you know, uh, social mobilization, even in the virtual spaces, incapacitated, where people are kind of retreating into inaction. That even clicktivism or slacktivism, all these like catchphrases for what one does, um, is people are retreating from that. You know, they're basically saying, well, I just, I mean, or the inability to see the fruits of your social mobilization in these virtual spaces translate into realities on the ground. And that is functionally what the state try to, tries to do, which is to demoralize you or demoralize us at large or demoralize, you know, members of these various kind of constituencies. Say, you know what, you could do whatever you want online. We'll contest you online, but guess what? You don't have the streets. Where are you? You're nowhere to be found. You know, so for instance, you turn on uh, Gazira or Shutter or any of the networks that are like highly oppositional to the state, and they'll 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 show you protests that are happening right now in random places in Egypt. I have no way of verifying that these protests actually exist or that this footage was shot yesterday or today or now. You know, it's impossible, and so the absence of verification translates into inaction in many instances, which means that the effigy, while it is a way to iconize your movement. It is also um, uh, a slippery slope that can actually cost you the movement. 
and this is where things get kind of sad, you know, that you can cost the movement by constructing effigies that are very easily incinerated. It's flammable. You take the effigy with you, and guess what? Somebody else appropriates it and lights it up, and it's gone. You know? So in the virtual space, these are things that are happening at a very expedited pace. So before you know it, you've, you've seen your image, your representation, your vision, your construction appropriated and, you know, and eviscerated in a complicated way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't hope. Because unfortunately, the virtual spaces are the only spaces we have left. In many instances, they're the only spaces we have left. Because even though violence in these virtual spaces is extremely damning, uh, but it is something that we can sustain in the, f in the physical manifestation of our bodies more so than what we can do uh, in, in, in real life. Uh, Dina's question about the communicative dimensions and the mediation of, of effigies. I think, you know, your question is really complicated and I think I want to kind of dwell on it a little bit more. So I may not be able to answer you right away. But I think the only thing that I, that is, I think is, that, I'm, that is worth mentioning that I could say right now is the fact that... Um, kind of volume doesn't necessarily equate with power in the sense that you could have a successful kind of highly mediated, mass disseminated effigy, but it may not necessarily be synonymous with impact. Um, so, you know, the state has a virtual monopoly on the mass production of effigies, like counter-revolutionary effigies, as well as, you know, revolutionary effigies. It just mass produces stuff. But volume doesn't really amount to anything because people can kind of see through it. So I think the, what ty the type of mediation or the substantive aspects of mediation and their ability to kind of resonate into the, the popular imaginary is, is where the answer is. But I don't necessarily have any... I, I, don't, I mean, people who study big data are so busy trying to figure out the algorithmic answers to why something is distributed and why something becomes viral and whether or not that has impact. I think when it comes to these effigies and representations of, of revolution, it is in a, the semantic sort of criteria that are almost intangible in, in some regards. So I don't really have an answer just yet, but I just think that to keep in mind that um, just because it's, it's omnipresent doesn't necessarily mean it's impactful. Um, your question, right? Okay. We should have started with that. It's such a, such a difficult question about... Um, okay, so the... Le I mean, really, you're asking a question about... Uh, it's really a lexical question, you know? It's a question about why... I mean, what does it mean to be using the term revolution? What does revolution represent? And I think that, in and of itself, is an effigy, you know? It is the greatest vulnerability that we have, right? Our, our strength and our weakness derives from the ability, and by say ice, I say people who believe that there is such a thing as revolution and that what happened maybe was a revolution and, and maybe there was something uh, kind of um, structural at, at stake uh, in this particular movement. Uh, but I think the term revolution is, um, is something that a lot of people are deeply committed to. Right? And they, they believe that it's necessary for it to be perceived as such and acted upon as such. And that whatever comes out of this particular social kind of destabilization that happened around 2011-2012, that the intention was to create the kind of structural change that would render it revolutionary. Now, whether or not that has happened is a different story. Now, the reason why I use the term revolution more specifically uh, is because I think 
the change has actually happened. Because if the change is in the popular imaginary, then I think something has happened. You know? Now, I cannot kind of tangibly present it to you and say, hey, listen, the Egyptian public has changed. And of course, most evidence seems to the contrary. You know? But if you happen, I mean, I'm just going to give one or two pieces of very, very small evidence. Um, in the two or three electoral um, you know, rounds that have happened since, uh, since late 2013, the turnout, despite every possible effort by the state to bring people out, including rendering it illegal for people not to vote, and deciding to fine people on not to vote, the vast majority of Egyptians, eligible Egyptians, did not vote. And the number of Egyptians under the age of 25 who voted is so minuscule almost to be negligible. This, these are the same people that came out and protested two years prior in massive numbers. What is it about this public? I mean, we often talk about silent majorities. These are not, this is not a majority that has always been silent that needs to be quote-unquote awakened. These are, this is a massive proportion of the population that has chosen to be silent at this particular moment in time. And, and passive, the state, passive aggressive. it's passive-aggressive. <laughs> and the state fears them more than anyone else. That is why the state continues to mass-produce youth conferences. Egypt is putting together a youth conference almost every month. I'm not even kidding. The state is putting together youth conferences every month. Every month there's like a, state, a youth conference somewhere, right? They've run out of youth. The youth are not showing up to the conference. No, that's it. They have to basically commission. They pay youth to show up to these conferences, you know? So all this to say that I think something has happened. Now, whether or not it is revolutionary, I think at the level of social consciousness, it is revolutionary. But it forces us to think beyond revolution in a traditional sense, in the same way that we have to think about democracy in a different way. If, I, if my definition of democracy is you know, popular governance, right, outside of electoral kind of participation, and my idea of revolution is part of the social, sort of the, collect, the social collective and the social imaginary, then maybe I don't believe in structures. <laughs> and that's a problem with me. But, uh. Uh, we've got time for maybe one or two questions. Uh, yes, please, because you wanted to ask a question. Yes. Uh, I don't know my Can you wait for the microphone, please? Very briefly, uh, we don't have more time. Um, my name's Chitra. I lived in Egypt for a while. Um, my question really linked on to maybe the function of effigies um, yeah, within uh, power. But I was, I was just curious because I think my understanding of effigy is that it's something that is quite is built because it's something that is to be set on fire, that it's combustible. Um, and as such, it's almost got the function of a spectacle. Yeah. Um, like... Uh, people create effigies to kind of burn the figure of the demon or to burn the thing that threatens to actually consume society. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Actually, you know, the, this amounts to, like, our humans uh, who have actually taken the act of... Thank you, uh, yes. Self-emulation uh, self can be effigies for uh, Tunisian revolution, etc. But that's another point. Uh, so I'm sorry, I have to take one of you, uh, or very, very briefly, uh, the gentleman in the middle, and then we'll move to you here. But this will be the last uh, two questions. 
Khair, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I just wanted to ask you a, a bit about the other revolution or not, the 30th of June, and what you think the long-term ramifications of this incident in our history will be. And of course, it's a very contentious state. It's a coup to some, a revolution to others. Do you think it was the beginning of the end of the short democratic uh, experience we had in procedural terms, that is? Or was it uh, the end of the beginning, really, in terms of another period of uh, uh, tyranny and oppression? Thank, Thank you. you. A final question from the gentleman in the front. Thank you very much. My name is Gohari. I study at UCL. And my question is regarding the future of um, Egyptian democracy. So as we understand that democracy isn't just showing up to the ballot and participating in elections, democracy is more than that. And with the non-competition that's going on in the coming up yeah. presidential election, is there still room or space for democracy to develop? Or is there any other forms of democratic expression? Is there still room for such democratic expression to develop? Or is it just... Um, okay, thank you. Uh, okay, Adil, the last chance to tell us. To say something answer. worthwhile. Yes, okay. in a like, very, very short okay. period of time. So uh, the question around uh, effigies and, and, I mean, I think that the definition that you described or the, the, the characterization that you described is exactly where the point of departure for the presentation is, which is that effigies are meant to be desecrated, to be burnt, to be incinerated, to be hung, to be, I mean, it's, they're not something that you want to produce. But as I continue to explore what effigies really mean, and historically, I mean, the term itself is much more contemporary, um, or its use is much more contemporary. But when we look at the etymology of the term and its use both in Latin and Italian and in various, and even English, prior to the 1940s, uh, we begin to see that an effigy is not necessarily something that is meant to be destroyed and desecrated. So part of it is a revisionism on my part to think about effigies in a way that is a slightly different, as something that could be uh, uh, an attempt at consecrating um, uh, an idea or a thought or a perspective or an ideology in a positive light. Um, so it may not be necessarily popular parlance at this particular moment, but that's my kind of thinking about it, that it does have that sort of dual or dichotomous uh, functionality to it. Uh, because at some point, when we think about uh, the effigy, right, presumably, let's say, uh, some people, you know, put up a, an effigy of Sisi and decide, decide to burn it in a square. Well, Sisi means something to a lot of other people. He's revered by a lot of people. So the act of the destruction of this effigy itself is, uh, is sort of a, uh, it, it sits in for the act itself. And for a lot of people, that is a violation. Not only a violation to the person, but rather a violation to their political kind of vision and, and perspective. So a, a burnt effigy of Mohammed Morsi uh, in Tahrir Square um, is an act of, of violation to his political supporters. So I'm conscious of the fact that there is a duality as far as the popular imaginary around those effigies, but and that it is not just about what we do to the effigy that renders it uh, important or interesting. So I think the key here is to expand the definition to have us think about effigies in the more kind of um, um, sort of multi-dimensional way um, to think about how effigies could be constructed. Uh, by the state to promote a particular perspective or idea or thought or, or memory rather than simply to destroy. But that's not to say that this is taken out. Uh, functionally speaking, 
these, two, these are two effigies. This is a composite of two effigies. The effigy constructed by the state to memorialize the revolution, even though they weren't really part of it. And this is an effigy uh, produced by the quote-unquote activists and revolutionaries to consecrate their own vision of, of what the revolutionary means, right? Uh, in both cases, this, you know, on January 25th, Police Day, they consider the effigy that sits atop to be something worth desecrated. They would like to burn the, the coffins of, of the people who, who died in, in Tahrir Square and elsewhere. But for the state, the destruction of this structure is tantamount to wanting the state to fall, right? And this is what they say in the media. It's like bringing down this structure is wanting the state to fall. And that is that duality that I'm trying to, um, to explain and characterize. The other question about the June 30th revolution coup, um, even though we talk about the importance of, of nomenclature and, and what that means, um, I think functionally speaking, the vast majority of transitions of power in Egypt in modern day are in one form or another a coup, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't kind of a popular sentiment that underlies them. So as far as June 30th is concerned, I consider June 30th to be a mass mobilization against a sitting president, elected or otherwise, right? I mean, I consider the women's marches in the United States to be a massive protest against a sitting president, right? So that, to me, is, is a revolutionary action. Um, I consider the removal of Mohamed Morsi, right, a few days later, to be a coup d'etat. Right, so that to me is is so. I in, as far as my functional use of the terms, I parse them out. Right, and I think that's important uh, for for people who care about <coughs> about procedure. Uh, but as someone who cares less about procedure, um, I think that virtually all of these are an amalgamation of popular will and you know and political maneuvering. So even when we look at the 1952 revolution slash coup that removed uh, the monarchy and brought in the quote-unquote revolutionary council of the military that ruled and has ruled in one form or another since then. Um, that is described in, popular, in, in you know, popular culture in Egypt as a revolution, but it was functionally a bloodless coup, right? So, it, but it, does it represent a popular will? Yeah, at the time, a lot of people wanted them removed. There was student actions and protests in, this, in the universities. There was industrial kind of protests. I mean, it was a major kind of social mobilization that preceded it. So I think the importance here is not to become so incredibly and fetishistically attached to the characterization so as to effectively uh, forget that there is sort of a constellation of nuances that exist in our peripheral vision. Um, and then the last question. Last, last question. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the of democracy. Oh, oh, yeah. Bring us back to that. Okay. The future of democracy in Egypt. Um, <laughs> the future of democracy in Egypt is outside of the state. Right? That's it. I mean, what, it, what is democratic governance? We have a country that is simply becoming increasingly ungovernable, truly ungovernable in every sense of the word. So what does it mean for someone to be in power nowadays? The vulnerability of day-to-day -day life and the vulnerability to those in power makes it necessary for us to begin to think of imaginative ways to construct democratic participation outside of the state. And all this to say that it is actually happening the vast majority of Egyptians are doing what they need to do to be able to manage their day-to-day -day life when, when the state has effectively said, you know, 
that's it. You're, you're your business, right? Like the cost of living in Egypt now is so exorbitant and the inflation is so significant that accessing basic needs is, is practically impossible for people who live at or below the international poverty line. So what does it mean for these people to survive nowadays? Or as they say in Egypt, it's sarraf, right? It's sarraf means figure it out, manage, manage yourself, right? And people bit sarrafu. Now, it's <laughs> sarraf. And, and I mean, I, there should be a theory around it's sarraf, you know? Uh, but the state, the state has, has failed its citizens on so many different occasions.